0: It's good to be with you today in the presence of the Lord, and hello to everybody with us online, worshiping from a lot of different locations today. For all of you, uh, a new convenient feature to access, talk notes for our sermon today. Just get out your camera feature on your phone and point it at this QR code, uh, and you can take notes there and also see information on upcoming events Um, I also want to say to Operation Christmas Child, boxes in the lobby, grab those, pick those up, take those home. Let's get all of those out of here this week because next week we bring those back and uh, start the delivery process. And lastly, Brock Storms, I love you, buddy. So proud of you. Thank you for strengthening my faith and ministering to me today through your baptism. What an awesome, your wet footprints down the back hallway uh, was a blessing, and it's also because you wore socks. <laughs> oh, Ephesians 1 through 3 uh, has been heavily saturated in doctrine, God's ultimate purpose in creation. The exaltation of Christ, redemption, forgiveness, grace, faith, citizenship, inheritance, and the mystery that salvation is offered to all people. So today we're in Ephesians 4. You can turn there. Uh, The verses will also be on the screen. But I'm only going to get through three verses this morning, so I hope that you are studying on your own. For Paul, there's always harmony between doctrine and ethics. Faith is not isolated from practice. Daily conduct, how one acted, was to be rooted in doctrine, which is what one believed. So Ephesians 4 through 6 moves doctrine into practice. And this was common for Paul. This was a theme in his writings. Romans chapter 1 through 11, doctrine. 12 through 16, practical. Galatians 1 through 4, doctrine. 5 and 6, practical. So it's fitting that today as we move out of doctrine and into the practical living out our faith, it's fitting that Paul is drawing our attention to unity in the body of Christ. These are polarizing times that are constantly inviting you and me to engage in polarizing conversations, right? These are polarizing times you and I are constantly drawn and invited into polarizing conversations. In fact, as one of your pastors, I have a confession to you today. When I need to make an important decision for the church, I pray for God's wisdom. That's not the confession. You already know that and expect that of me. The confession is, after I pray, I also worry. And I worry that some of you are gonna be upset at the decision I've made. And I worry more that some of you are gonna hide behind your keyboard and take out your frustrations on me. That's my confession. Because even in the body of Christ, even in the church, interpersonal conflict is to be expected. We can all be guilty of turning these tiny relational little molehills into gigantic mountains. We make a huge deal out of something small and we experience conflict. The president of Lifeway Christian Resources launched a survey to discover what are the fights that exist in the church today. And I want to read a few of the results that came in as he conducted his survey. One, church had a congregational vote, a congregational vote to determine whether or not the clock in the sanctuary should be removed. One pastor was confronted about the length of his beard and was told that the length of his beard was inappropriate. One church had a massive fight over how to use their unused land behind their facilities. Do we build a children's playground or put in a cemetery? One leadership team had not one but two very lengthy meetings to determine which weed eater to purchase for the church. I see a few of our leadership team members here this morning. Praise God we don't get into the weeds, right? No pun intended. That was a spontaneous joke. Weed eater. (laughs) Weed eater. What picture of Jesus do we hang in our lobby? Can a worship pastor wear sandals in church? What brand of grape juice do we use for communion, or should we use wine? And no joke, here's another one. Can you eat deviled eggs at a church potluck? <laughs> potluck, potluck. What temptation, temptation, what temperature is the sanctuary? Is it too hot or is it too cold? The song selection. Because it's got to be, we got five songs. on. They all got to be your top favorites, Right? And then the color of paint on the walls. These exist in most churches and the list can be endless. Two months ago, I was in the Dominican Republic meeting with pastors and visiting a lot of churches. And one church was receiving a fresh coat of paint the day that we visited. So you would never guess the color of paint. It was bright pink. And the pastor comes up And says, you know why we chose the color bright pink for our new coat of paint, right? And I said, no, I don't know why. And he kind of jokingly said, brother, we didn't pick it. The paint was donated. (laughs) Of course, bright pink is perfect because it was free churches split over these kinds of things and these are not even theological issues and by the way if you don't like the color of paint in this sanctuary i'm going to just offer a little convicting word for you the name of it is amazing gray so if you don't like it that's between you and the lord today so I don't think we need to look at the instructions from Paul on attaining and maintaining unity in the church until we first look at what did Paul mean by using the metaphor body of Christ. What did that mean to Paul? So let me share a few things about this metaphor. The way I understand it, as Paul used it, he applied this metaphor to three different circles of faith. The first is this local congregation. So that would be Redeemer Church. We are, you and me and us and we, we are united as the body of Redeemer Church. But second, members of neighboring churches. So I think of South Tulsa Baptist down the street and Eric Costanza is a dear friend of mine. We partner in the kingdom work and labor together as the body of Christ with churches, with members down the street, our neighbors. But then Paul also uses this term, body of Christ, to describe the grander scale of the globe, believers around the world. Dave Shasoli's church in Kenya and Joy Bendoy's church in the Philippines and Biju Kumar's church in India, Umar Amana's church in Nicaragua and Samuel Lucian's church in Haiti, who we're partnering with. So I have the luxury of having a wonderful creative designer down the hall from my office. His name's Billy Adams. I asked him to design this uh, graphic, this diagram for me to help explain further the grand scale of what we belong to in the body of Christ. Christ is the head. He's the source of life for all churches, but he's more. He is our ruler, and he is our ultimate Authority. I've told you here before, I like to be called lead pastor as my title because I am reminded that Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church. He fills this church with power, he fills the church with grace on a global scale. We are baptized into one spirit on a global scale. We are united in the Eucharist and we maintain a spirit of cooperation with churches around the world, not competition, cooperation. We want the church in Asia to prosper and flourish and grow, and we want South Tulsa Baptists to do the same. We need every church across the world to be actively engaged in the Great Commission, compelled by Christ empowered and united by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, the good of our neighbor, and the salvation of those who don't know him. Three of you agreed with me. Let me say it again and cast this net and see if anybody else agrees with me today. We need every church in the body of Christ, ours, our neighbors, and across the world to be actively engaged in the Great Commission, compelled by the head of the church, Jesus Christ, empowered and united by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbor, and for the salvation of those who don't know him. Y'all are trying to earn your lunch today. (laughs) I also want to mention in Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote through another kind of imagery, and that is living sacrifices. This would have been very familiar language to Israel, to the people of God, but notice what he does a few verses later. He shifts to the metaphor away from living sacrifice to the body. This was absolutely not accidental. It was intentional. As we've looked at Ephesians' previous chapters, we've talked about the larger Gentile context that this letter was written to, people that were living in a pagan uh, environment with a pagan past. And for the Gentiles who were converting to Christ, they would have found it very, very difficult to identify themselves as Israel, as they read in the Old Testament, as the people of God. Theologian James Dunn writes that this is a dominant theological image in Pauline ecclesiology, which is just as we look at the study of the church, Paul's use of the metaphor of body is critically important to help define and frame our theology. He levels the playing field over and over again by saying, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free nor male or female, nor barbarian or Scythian, but Christ is all, and in him we are all one. So now we can turn to the text. Instructions on attaining and maintaining our unity. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, say walk, in a manner worthy, say worthy, Of the calling, say calling, to which you have been called. So now I'm going to elaborate on three words, and you probably could guess which three. Walk. Paul repeats this word very often in his writings. Walk in love. Walk as children in the light. Walk by the Spirit. In and of itself, if I walked into this pulpit this morning and I said, church, I've got a one-word sermon for you. Are you ready? Walk. And then I exited and sat down. That's a really fine sermon. It really is. When you get down to the matter in which Paul uses this, many of you have sprained your ankle or you've blown a knee. And when you walk by other people after busting up your ankle or your knee, you walk with a limp. And people can look at you and see your limp and know something's going on with that person's ankle. Something's going on with that person's knee. Our Christian walk should have a visible limp in this world as well. When people look at you and you're a Christ follower, they should see the limp of love. They should see a limp of patience and gentleness and kindness and humility. And they ought to be able to look at you and know by the way that you live, that person's walking with Christ Jesus. Second word is worthy. One of my favorite interpretations of this word is that of equal weight or balance. So you know when you put two items on a scale and they weigh the equal amount that they're balanced. Paul is encouraging the early church to live with balance between doctrine and practicality, doctrine and practice. Our Christianity isn't just to be made visible in our hearts. And in our heads, but also in our hands. Also the way that we live among one another. Because to be heavy in knowledge, but light in practice, or vice versa, will always keep us somewhat spiritually imbalanced. We need to have both. And lastly, called. What are we called to? Let me answer that with Scripture. We're called to repentance, Acts 17.30. We're called out of darkness and into his wonderful light, 1 Peter 2.19. We're called to believe, John 6.44. And we're called to follow the example of Christ, 1 Peter 2.11. So thankfully, Paul gives some very practical ways that we can walk worthy of our calling. It starts in verse 2 where he says, With all humility. C.S. Lewis said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. But I also think that humility is seeing yourself the way that God sees you. Infinite and intrinsic value, but no more valuable than anyone else. This is how we're called to see each other. You have and I have intrinsic, infinite value in the eyes of God, but no more value than anyone else. This has been a struggle since the earliest gatherings of Christ followers. His own disciples wrestled with this. Remember Luke 9. There's an argument. It starts among the disciples to decide which among them is to be the greatest. Do you remember this? Let me just unpack what's happening around the disciples at this time. They had just witnessed Jesus feed 15 to 18,000 people with scraps and there were leftovers after the meal. Peter, John, and James had just gone to pray with Jesus and a cloud appears around them. They heard a voice come from the cloud saying this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. They not only see Moses and Elijah appear, but catch this, they hear him talking. So these two don't just appear, but now they're having a conversation with Jesus. And then Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy who was being physically assaulted by an evil spirit. And then G- Jesus repeats to his disciples what they heard from the cloud, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Don't you think, after everything that the disciples had just seen, and don't you think, after everything the disciples had just heard, all of these miracles, don't you think they would just shut up? Why would you ever even talk when these things are happening among you? When Jesus is proving himself to be sovereign, to be superior, to be a miracle worker. But an argument broke out. All these things they're watching Jesus do and accomplish, and how do they react? Let's gather around and talk about which one of us is the greatest. It's, it's ridiculous, really. This argument should have never happened. But it just shows that we've all got an ego. And our ego is always going to be in conflict with the greatest one, and that's Jesus. You know, long ago, I played in a basketball league at the YMCA. That's where I really shined in my career. And on my team was a good friend of mine who played all four years of college. He played in the NBA, and he played in Europe. And so we have this game, it's an important game, it's in a tournament. You know, the stands are filled with people, everybody came to watch him play, not us, but him. And the game is tied, it's coming down to the end, the clock is ticking, and I've got the ball and I'm bringing it up the floor. And I understand that I have one point for my entire existence in this moment. One reason that I'm there, and that's to dribble the ball up the floor and pass it to my teammate, but at some point at the end of this game, I had forgotten that I got zero Division I offers to play school ball. Somewhere in this game, I had forgotten that I've never been paid to play a sport, and so you know what I did. I took the shot, to everyone's amazement. I took the shot, and I made it. I'm pulling your leg, I missed that shot. I missed it. Everyone in the gym is wondering, who is this guy, first of all? And why, when he has the greatest player in the entire league on his team, why did he take the shot? I got an answer for you. It's called ego. I wanted to be the greatest in that moment. Forget about his career. I wanted to make it about me. I wanted to show all the fans in the stands that day. I got this. I am the greatest. That just wasn't God's plan for my life. Basketball's different. In the body of Christ, we have to see one another through this lens. You have infinite and intrinsic value, but no more value than anyone else. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness or meekness, you'll see in other places, which can be understood as power under control. All I'm going to say about this is that if you don't think you are a meek person, and you know if you are, if you don't think that you're meek, then try to be meek for one week, and you'll see how much strength it takes to be meek. If you're not a meek person, just try to be meek for one week, and you will quickly realize that this is all about strength. Meekness is controlled strength. And patience, the word in the original language here, is often used throughout the New Testament to describe God's attitude towards us. It implies a spirit of persistence and never giving up and never deterred by discouragement. And another more characteristic meaning could be a long temper. In the context of church unity, You can think here of somebody who has been wronged and who, according to the world's perspective, should take revenge but chooses not to. That's patience. It's also believing that God's timing is perfect while never praying, oh, God, please grant me patience, but hurry. And then it ends with bearing with one another in love. You know, humility and gentleness and patience. Bearing with one another in love. These are all dimensions of love. These all fall under the all-inclusive Christian virtue of love. And to bear with is to endure one another. How many of y'all sitting next to somebody today that you just need to endure? Don't answer that. A way that we can all relate to is to put up with someone who is on your very last nerve. Not someone who's on your 12th to last nerve. But the very last nerve, any of you who are with us online right now because you're at home quarantined with many little children are putting this into practice, I'm sure. And lastly, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is preserved as we keep peace with one another rather than acting selfishly. By a show of hands, is anyone else here selfish or is it just me? Okay, so we control that selfishness through the help of the Holy Spirit in order to promote peace and unity. So I said earlier in my sermon that Paul shifts from doctrine to practical. I'm gonna get really practical right now. And I'm gonna offer you a few suggestions that you can start to implement at home right away. A few suggestions that my family can implement at home right away. Don't elbow anybody as I say these. Seek to understand rather than being understood. Listen to someone's opinion without this instinctive reaction to immediately correct them. Don't raise your voice. Don't call names. Don't be mean to someone's face, behind their back, behind your keyboard, or on your smartphone. Don't gossip. For the glory of God and the health of the church, please don't gossip. Lastly, I'm going to ask all of you to recite 12 words, nice and loud this morning, words that I use with all couples and marriage counseling and premarital counseling. I want you to say these out loud with me because this is good practice on promoting unity in the bond of peace. Are you ready? This is interactive. I am sorry. I I was wrong. wrong. Please forgive me. me. I I love you. See, we're well on our way here But now I invite you to say this with me again in a way that sounds more genuine and not so much like a commercial. This is how we say it at home. Say this with me I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to behave. And hopefully, if the president of Lifeway Christian Resources launches another survey one day to learn about the fights that exist in the church, I pray that there's a day where we can say, There are none. Disagreements? We have thousands. But fights? We don't fight. We're the body of Christ, we're siblings. We have humility and patience and gentleness. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this body, we are united in the bond of peace. I pray that that is true for the bride of Christ one day and true for Redeemer as well. Amen. Come on, stand to your feet and let's worship together. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.